Alright, so tonight we'll be, as I said, continuing our study in biblical theology. We'll be looking specifically at the Davidic covenant this evening. And so as we've been looking through biblical theology, as I've been saying every week, we're really looking at that grand storyline of Scripture. We've been looking at the grand narrative of God's redemptive acts through history. And so that's what we've been looking at. And as we've been doing it, uh, the way we framed our study is by looking at the covenants. Because they're really, in many ways, the, the framework, the backbone of that storyline of Scripture, that we can really see the plan and purposes of God play out as we see Him enter into relationship with mankind through the covenants. And so that's the framework we've done in our study. And so as, as we continue our study tonight, we really saw last week, we see that in Moses, in the Mosaic Covenant, God forms a people. He forms a nation unto himself, and he binds them together by the law. So by the law, he, he binds them together as a nation as they commit to the covenant with God. And then in David, what we're going to see is really the visible expression of the kingdom of God. So we'll see the visible, physical expression of the kingdom of God on earth. And in many ways, we're beginning to see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. So we're watching the beginning of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises as we're watching the progression of the covenants of God's promises play out through history. And so we, we begin to see a people, as we saw under Moses. We see a kingdom of priests. And now we're starting to see them enter into the land. And then we're going to see kings come from them as Abraham was promised by God. So we're seeing the, the realities of the Abrahamic covenant start to come to bear in this Davidic covenant. But in many ways, it's still just a shadow fulfillment. It's just, it's just a fulfillment of the things to come, of the greater realities that these shadows are pointing us to. So the author of Hebrews describes the Old Testament events and things such as this as the shadows and that Christ is the substance, as we talked about in that first week of our study. And so in many ways, we can look at the, the Davidic kingship, the Davidic kingdom, as a shadow fulfillment of what's to come. And so as, as, we, as we approach this, one, one thing that, that we see throughout the scriptures is there's three names that just continue to pop up throughout scripture. Abraham, Moses, and David. And that's where we're at tonight. And so really that these three figures loom large. In, in the Old Testament and to come in the New Testament. Now, many other figures are looked back upon, David, Joseph, but throughout the scriptures, we really see these promises to Abraham, Moses, and David really bear very heavy on the things of God. And so they're very important to this biblical narrative that we've been looking at and the expression of God's rule and reign over the entire heavens and the earth as he does this through his covenants with these figures. So tonight, our purpose will be to take a look at the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at the kingdom of God as it's expressed through the Davidic covenant. So that, that's our purpose tonight, to, to look at the kingdom of God as it's coming to bear in the physical reality of the Davidic kingship. So as we've been doing in each of our studies, we've been kind of connecting it backwards before we go forwards, and then usually we, we end somewhere in the New Testament. So tonight we'll be starting at at really Sinai, and then going forward, we'll end up in Revelation by the end of tonight as we watch the kingdom of God as, as we see through the Davidic king. So as we go forward from Sinai, which is where we ended last week, they spend 40 years in the wilderness. We're familiar with that. They're told to go in to take the land. They send the spies into the land. Even though God was to go before them, God was to cause them to take the land. God was to do this great act. The spies come back, and they give them a bad report. The Hebrew text actually says an evil report. 
is what, it, what it's called. So they give them an evil report that they, they're giants in the land, and we, and we see all these things about the land, and so God judges them, and an entire generation will now die off in the wilderness. And so in Numbers, we see that occurring as, as God is testing his people in the wilderness. So for 40 years, they're wandering the desert, basically, as God's judgment are coming to bear upon them. But then we see Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy in many ways is, some people call it like a re-giving of the law. But what it is, is Moses is, is now old, and he's, he's on his deathbed, and, and he's renewing the covenant with Israel. He's pointing them back to the Mosaic covenant, that original covenant at Sinai. They renew the covenant before they go into the land. And in many ways, you could, th- you could so- see it as Mosaic covenant preaching is what he's doing in Deuteronomy. He's preaching the law to the people, and we see all these wonderful realities about the law in Deuteronomy. And so he's giving them his last words as he's about to die. And Joshua is about to take them into the land, which is exactly what happens, as we're familiar with, is that it will be through Joshua, ultimately, that they will take the land, that Jericho will fall. Again, these, these narratives that we're so familiar with, these Bible stories. Um, but what happens is they go into the land, and as we know, they don't do everything God commanded. They were to be God's hand of judgment upon these wicked nations for their sin and rebellion, but they fail to do what God has told them to do. And so, as Joshua dies, we're given this terrible statement. Because in Deuteronomy 6, the people were instructed to teach these truths to their children. They were instructed to talk about the things of God, to pass these things down. And J- Joshua, as he's, as he's about to, to perish, as he's about to die, he tells them at the end of Joshua, that famous line of, of whom will they serve, right? As for me and my house, right? And so he's, ch- he's talking to the people, like, who will you serve now that we're in the land? What will you do? And as Judges opens up, this is what we're told in Judges 2.10. And there arose another generation after them. So after Joshua's generation, there arose another one who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. God had done an amazing work through Israel, as as we saw in the Exodus and Egypt. And we had seen the hand of God upon the people of Israel as he's made them a nation. He's made them a people. But yet, right after Joshua, again we see failure. Immediately after they go into the land, the, the next generation has already forgotten about the work of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6 has not occurred. These truths have not been passed down. Or they haven't been taken to heart. But either way, the people, the people are failing to recognize the goodness of God upon them. And that's where we are in the book of Judges. And so, if you will, open your Bibles to the end of Judges, really, the beginning of Ruth. That's where we're going to start tonight. So go ahead and ju- uh, turn to, to Ruth 1. So as Judges is opening up again, Joshua is, is, is dying. We kind of see the last little bit of, of Joshua's leadership over the people. And, and we get that terrible statement, as I just read in Joshua or Judges 2.10. But throughout Judges, we see a repeated pattern. We see a pattern in Judges, and it's a pattern of, of ongoing failure as the people begin to, to be more and more distant from their God, and they begin to be less and less concerned for the things of God. And so throughout Judges, really we see Israel's sin lead to distress. And so we see this pattern throughout Judges where Israel's sin leads to distress, which ultimately, going back to the Mosaic Covenant, we would know that that would be God's hand of judgment 
calling them back to faithfulness through covenantal curses. And so throughout the story of Judges, throughout this narrative, we continue to see this, this continual cyclical cycle, this downward cycle in Judges where there's rebellion, judgment, then they cry out to God or God chooses to raise up a judge and then we kind of see these temporary salvific acts as God uh, restores his people but again it's not fully and they continue back in their patterns of rebellion and so it continually throughout judges is short-lived and as they go down this downward spiral we're reminded that they were supposed to be the people in the land that were a light to the nations they're supposed to be a blessing to the nations and now here we are in the book of judges right after joshua right after they go into this land and they're already spiraling downhill again just as we saw through babel just as we saw throughout our redemptive events as we've been looking through what god has done through history we continue to see this pattern where god redeems his people and then what do they do they make a golden calf they make a tower of babel they get drunk off the wine. And so we continue to see this pattern throughout history where God is, is, is giving them this land through Joshua and his leadership. They take the land. We see these wonderful salvific events in the Joshua narrative. But now here we are in Judges. And as they fail to take the land, they get worse and worse. And the final narrative, if you're familiar with that, it really ends with Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. There's this terrible act that happens to a Levite and his concubine. And when you look at it and you read it and you compare it to Sodom and Gomorrah, they sound like similar accounts. They're, they're in some places almost word-for-word accounts of one another, though this is exactly what happened. It's a pattern repeating itself through Scripture. But what we're seeing is that Israel has begun to look just like the nations they were supposed to be a blessing and a light to. One commentator called it the canonization of Israel. They were supposed to go into the land and be the people of God, and yet instead they have become Canaanized themselves, and now they look just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And as the story ends, the tribes unite, the 11 tribes unite against Benjamin, and they nearly exterminate the tribe of Benjamin, if you're familiar with that story, because of what happened with that Sodom and Gomorrah type account. And so, by the end of it, the tribes that God had, had bound together by his law that were united as the people of God are now divided about to, the only thing that unites them now is their destruction of a fellow tribe of Israel. And so we see that this terrible ending to Judges. And who can give me the summary statement of Judges at the end? Yep, that's right. The people did what was right in their own eyes, right? In those days there was no king. And they did what was right in their own eyes. And we see that, uh, that statement is mentioned throughout Judges. But in the end, it's like this, this bell that is just gonging, just reminding us that, that there is no king and that they are doing exactly what is right in their own eyes. And now they look just like the Canaanites as the story ends. And so as this book closes, we're left wondering what is next. But there's hope. And that's why we're in Ruth. And so look to the first verse in the book of Ruth, because again, this is very important background as we get into the Davidic covenant. So look at Ruth 1.1. Ruth begins, in the days when the judges ruled. So in the days when the judges ruled, Ruth. That's how you can look. That. In the days that the judges ruled, this is what God is doing. God is still at work and we will see that through the narrative 
in Ruth. And so in the dark days of Judges, in these terrible dark days, there is light. And it's the hope of the king to come. That kinsman redeemer, that king that will come, the kingdom of God that will come to bear, that is the light in the dark days of the Judges. And so in Ruth, we have, it's really a beautiful narrative. It's a wonderful narrative, if you read it, of God's loving kindness. As, as we see Ruth being brought into Israel, being brought into the people of God, we see this, this beautiful text of a Gentile woman who ultimately will take refuge under the wings of God. And so if you look with me in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, but Ruth said, Ruth is speaking to Naomi. Naomi was the Israelite who, who comes into Moab because there was judgment in the land. There was famine in the land ultimately. And so they left the land and they come to Moab and, and their sons marry Moabite women, but they die, they perish. Naomi becomes a widower also, or a widow also. And so they're in the land and, and they decide to go back to Israel and Ruth chooses to go with her. And this is what she says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And she goes on to say, where you lodge, I will lodge. And then this is important what she says here. She says, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This beautiful statement. She's not just following Naomi, though she is, and she is very faithful to Naomi throughout this text, but she's following Naomi's God. She's come to see the faithfulness of God. And so she's choosing to return. And this is what Boaz, is, as she gets to know Boaz, this is what Boaz says to her in chapter 2, verse 12. You skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, speaking of her faithfulness, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So again, Boaz is recognizing that she has come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. As, as we're seeing this beautiful story, uh, even in Judges, right, this, this story is, is what's occurring, that we see this hope that a Gentile woman is being blessed by the God of Israel. And she's coming under his wings. And I, I love that statement there. Not only that, but she becomes the recipient to the promises of Abraham. And so turn ahead to chapter 4. Chapter 4, if someone will read verse 11 of chapter 4, that would be great. Verse 11 of chapter 4. So may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. What is the significance of that? Yeah, the, the mothers of, of 12 tribes of, of Israel, right? In some ways, the, the matriarchs of Israel is, is this Moabite woman who's now come into Israel, they're, they're giving upon her the blessings of Israel. 
May, may she be like them. May she be brought into the blessings of God. And so she's becoming a full-fledged heir of the promises because she's been brought into Israel. She's become a recipient of the promises to Abraham. And through Ruth, more importantly, we come to see David. We come to see David. And that's what is so key to this text is we see, again, this, this beautiful text of, of a Moabite woman being brought in. We'll later come to see her in the Gospel of Matthew as he chooses to put her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But this is what the writer says as we end Ruth in verse 17 of chapter 4. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Again, so Ruth has come into the household of, of Naomi, and so, so through Naomi, though this will be Ruth as the mother, we can see them as united, but they named him Obed. And who's the, the father? He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if you're not sure how important the author thinks this is, we get a genealogy after this statement, repeating what he just said and expanding upon it. So again, we've seen throughout our study the importance of these genealogies. We've seen the importance of what God is doing through a particular people as his purposes are coming to bear through these people. And so the text continues in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amimadab. Amimadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David so again in the time of judges Ruth in the time of judges David that is the hope that we're being pointed forward to that is the the kinsman redeemer that we're longing for in these dark days of the judges and the people of God need to be reminded of these things because it's a it's easy for us to be eclipsed by the darkness in the world. It's easy for us to, to be downtrodden, to be discouraged because we see the darkness in the world and we need to remind ourselves that God is on his throne. That even in the days of judges, even in the times of difficulty, God is ruling and reigning. And his light shines into the darkness even when we don't see it. Because clearly he was at work during this time. His promises had not failed he hadn't given up on what he had promised to Abraham what he had promised in Genesis 3:15. and if there's any time to give up on those promises those days of judges would in many ways seem like like a time when God should give up but he doesn't and so as we open Samuel which is what we've been studying on Sunday morning now for for months as we open Samuel, we're opening it again with that narrative focus as we've been doing in our study. We're opening it recognizing what God has been doing through the covenants, through Abraham, going back to Noah, going back to Moses, to, to Adam, right? So we see what's happening from the garden, and that's the background that we approach these texts with. And really, whenever we read our Bibles, we need to think like that. We need to think backward and forward. W what is this text telling me in light of God's redemptive purpose, as in light of God's story? Are we thinking like that when we approach the text? So with that being said, let's open to 2 Samuel 7.
This is obviously fresh on our mind as Brian preached on 2 Samuel 7 this Sunday. So it's interesting how things kind of come together like that in the same week that he preaches on that. We're doing the covenant with David, right? And so we're familiar with the story because Brian's been preaching it for months on end. But what happens first before we even get to David? Saul. Saul. So again, they want a, a king like the nations. They want a king that is, is, in a sense, right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what they get in Saul, as, as we've seen that, that narrative play out. And so again, it's going to go back to God's initiation. God's initiative, sorry. It's going to go back to God's initiative. God is going to have to do the act that he's called to do. Because we know from Genesis, Jacob, as he's giving promises to his children, he promises that the scepter will not depart from who? Judah, that's, that's correct, from Judah. And so the king's supposed to be from Judah, not from, where's Saul from? Benjamin, right? So he's not from the, the line that is to have the scepter. He's not from that kingly line that's to be. And in addition, he's not a king like the kings of Deuteronomy 17, which is what Moses tells us even in Deuteronomy, we see in the law stipulations for a king. God's plan and purpose always involved a king to come. Not the king like the people want, but a king after his own heart. And so Deuteronomy 17 gives us these stipulations for a king, things like not having too many horses because ultimately they would trust in horses for their strength and power, or not having too many wives because like we'll see with Solomon, they've become a distraction and obviously God also intended for for one wife, one man in a covenant relationship of marriage. But not only that, Deuteronomy 17 calls for, I think, one, one of my favorite stipulations for the king is that they're to make a copy of the law themselves. So if you're going to be king, what you're to do is to write out the law. I mean, think about this, like to literally write out the law, to handwrite it out. They didn't have computers, and they're handwriting out the law. And so they're to have, write for themselves a copy of the law, is what the text says in Deuteronomy 17. I mean, could you imagine this if maybe... You know, someday we call a pastor to this church, right? And maybe someday Brian retires or whatever, right? And so what if we had them write out the Bible? And we said, our stipulation for coming here is you're going to write out the entire Bible. Or maybe the President of the United States, the leader of our nation. In order to be the President of the United States, you need to now write out the entire Bible. Right? Because the king who writes out the Bible is going to have that Bible on their heart. Is going to have that law on their heart. Because oftentimes when you're memorizing scripture, those of you that memorize scripture, one of the things they say is to write it out, to, to write it down, because that helps your, your mind to think about it, to, to think about the breaks and think about the sentence structures you're writing it out. Another thing is you internalize it more, because you think about it, and it penetrates your heart. And so that's the man that the law is supposed to be, or I'm sorry, that's the man that the king is supposed to be. He's supposed to be a man of the law. He's supposed to be a man that is faithful to the Mosaic Covenant. So again, as we've been talking about these covenants, as, as, as they, they are in continuity with one another, the Davidic king is supposed to be a man of the law, administrator of the law over the people. And that's not what Saul was, as we've, we've seen that week after week. And so it will be God that will take the initiative. It will be God that will act. He will choose David, even when all of his brothers look better than him. It will be David that is chosen, he will be the one that will carry on these promises. He will be the one through whom the the Genesis 3.15 promises will come through. 
And so as we arrive at 2 Samuel 7, again, this is our background, and they've just brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And so as we look at 2 Samuel 7, we see two things happening. One, God is raising up a king, not just a king, but a kingdom and a dynasty of kings through David, but also the presence of God is returning to Israel, is returning to Jerusalem. And so we see these two things begin to coalesce again is the presence of God and the rule of God as we th- see through David. So these are two important aspects of the Davidic covenant. is not just God's rule and reign, but God's presence with his people, an expression of God's presence through his kings. And so with, with that lens, we can approach 2 Samuel 7. So we'll start in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So again, it's no small thing that now there's, there's rest in Israel. David had seen conflict for most of his life at this point, fighting from within Israel and fighting from without Israel against the nations. And so it's no small thing that now there is finally rest. There is, is a taste of rest in Israel. And David says, it's time for me to build God a house. And so him and Nathan get together and they come up with this plan. And again, I think Brian so well reiterated on, on Sunday that they come up with this plan on their own accord, not according to the word of God. Because quite often, you, the, as the king and the prophet come together, the word of God is, is usually the prophet brings to the king. And we don't see that here. And those, these, the, it seems like this is happening with the best of intentions. This is not what God has for David. And so in verse 4, we see a but. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So now we actually see the word of the Lord coming. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And he goes on, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So this is what God's plans are. Right? These were your plans. I don't need a house. These are your plans. These are now my plans. And this is what God says to him. Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. That's the type of language you want to follow. That's what you want to do and trust in. Thus says the Lord of hosts, look at God, God's action. I took you. Right, again, we see God's divine action. I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Again, it's, it's, it's I that have done this. It's God. This is an act of God. I'm the one that took you from being a shepherd to now being a prince of Israel. And he goes on to say, and I, so again we see his language, and I 
have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. What does that sound like? Sounds like Abraham again. So God was going to make Abraham a great name. And as I said at the beginning of our study, we're starting to see some of these Abrahamic promises start to have a little bit of fulfillment to them. We see them kind of gaining steam and getting clearer as we're seeing God working through this covenant. And so I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So again, if you didn't catch that I'm kind of pointing you backwards, he says that there in addition, like the great names of those of the earth. So we can already think back to the patriarchs. We can already think back to God's action in previous eras. And again in I, verse 10, I will appoint a place. What does that sound like? The promised land. Abraham again. I will give you a land. And so now we see a, a place. So they're, they're, these promises are getting to be more, more realized in a sense. I will point a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So not only will they be in a place, but there will be peace. And so again, now we go back even farther than Abraham. We're looking back to the garden. We're looking back to that day where we're at peace again. We're at shalom with God, that we're walking with him in his place, the garden. And so in these promises, we're seeing the promises of God. We're seeing their, their building steam. We're seeing God's redemptive plan being played out in this covenant. And again, it goes all the way back to what God has been doing from the beginning. And so I will make you a place you won't be disturbed anymore. And then verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So this is important. David had said, I will make you a house. And it's God saying what God is actually going to do. It's going to be me doing the house building. It's going to be God doing this act. God is going to build the house. He's going to build the kingdom, the dynasty. He's going to do this great act. And so it's almost like a wordplay here as David came to him with this desire to build a house. God says, no, I will build the house. And so in verse 12, it continues, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David's going to die. We're already seeing that here. And as we've been walking through again from Genesis, we saw those initial genealogies that had figure after figure and, and they died. And we're waiting for that seed. We're waiting for that son of God that will come to restore what is broken and who won't die. And as good as things are in David, we already see that it's not him. Because his days on this earth will be fulfilled and he will lie down with his father's. And God goes on and says, I will raise up your offspring after you. What does that remind us of again? Abraham again. I'll raise up offspring after you, but now we're seeing it more specific because these offspring will be kings. 
who shall come from your body, which is, again, language that God used with Abraham, speaking of the child of promise that would actually come from Abraham's physical body. God tells him that because Abraham has been going about the promises all wrong. And so he said, no, no, the child will be from your own body. And so from, with David, we see the same language that now kings will come from his body. And as we, we see the last part of verse 12, he says, and I will establish his kingdom. So God is going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to do it through a particular family, and that family is David. And so God it will establish this kingdom. And he goes on in verse 13 to say, and he shall build a house for my name. So one of David's children will build this house, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. This will be a throne that is everlasting. An everlasting throne will occur through the Davidic kingship. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And we'll see this. The Davidic kings will be disciplined. The Davidic kings will fail us. And we will see the failure of Israel and the failure of the kings who fail to live out Deuteronomy 17 who fail to live out the law and to be faithful administrators of the law to the people. And he goes on to say in verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So despite their disobedience, despite that discipline, God's love will not depart. And as I took it from Saul, so there's a contrast there. Because with Saul, he says, whom I put away from before you. And so with Saul, God's spirit had departed Saul and we didn't see that that line live on as far as that kingship but this will be unlike that this will be a forever kingship and he goes on to say if that wasn't good enough promise already he says in 16 and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever again forever before me your throne shall be established for how long forever again in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we began with the word of the Lord coming to Nathan and we end with being reminded that this is the word of the Lord. This is a vision from God. This is a promise of God as God has, has now chosen to establish a covenant with David of an everlasting kingdom. And David will go on to, to pray this prayer of gratitude. It's a beautiful prayer. And even in that, we're reminded of Egypt as, as David points back to Egypt in his prayer. And so again, they're looking at the biblical narrative. They're looking at God's work in salvation history, and they see it as tied together. They see God's actions, and it causes them to have faith today. And so we see this, this wonderful covenant that God has made to establish his rule and reign on earth, that he'll ex express his rule and reign on earth through the Davidic kingship. But again, we'll see failure. As we turn forward, we can turn to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll turn forward to there. 1 Kings chapter 2. Solomon will be anointed king. Solomon will be anointed king. And we'll see the continuation of David's house 
in 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. We'll look at the first three verses. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, So in a sense, he draws Solomon in. This is his deathbed words of wisdom for his son, and this is what he'll say to him. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. First off, I love that he's telling his son that. I think that's that's a great way to start off what he's about to say. But be strong and show yourself a man. And he tells him this, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And we'll go on to verse 4. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. Again, he's pointing him back to 2 Samuel 7. He's pointing him back to the promises concerning David and his family. And he goes on to say, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so again, David, as he's on his deathbed, he's calling Solomon to faithfulness. He's calling him to be a man of the Mosaic Covenant. A man who would be faithful to the things of God as he sits on the throne. And that God will bless. God will bless a king who sits on his throne and rules well. And so we see this wonderful act. We, We see Solomon actually ride into the city of God on a mule. And we see this beautiful act of him being inaugurated king. We'll see God pour out his wisdom upon Solomon. We'll see God pour out riches upon Solomon. And things look good. Because again, we're waiting for that promise. See, we're waiting for that one to come. And we're asking, is this the one? We're asking, is, is he the one? And there, there's wind in his sails. Things look great. When, when, I was, when I was younger, I had an older brother. He's a couple of years older than me. And he liked, to, he liked to be on the water, and he liked boats. And uh, he had the opportunity to learn how to, how to sail in a sailboat, in a small, like, one-person sailboats. And so one day, he had been doing it for a while at this point, and uh, we were on a lake in Washington State, and it was very windy up there and a lot more windy than we were used to where we were from in California. And he was on the lake, and he was going fast. And I was just watching him from the shore. I'm I'm still pretty young at this point, and I'm pretty impressed. Like, he's going really fast. It was more wind than I had usually seen before, just being from California where we were at. There wasn't much wind. And he's going really fast. And I'm I'm almost, like, kind of cheering him on inside, thinking, man, that's really cool. You know, I wish I was in that boat right now. And uh, as he's going, he's on the middle of the lake, and all of a sudden his sail rips, and he just stops. He's on the middle of a lake, and so most sailboats are not really retrofitted to, like, row. So he's just got this little tiny paddle, and now he's got to row all the way from the middle of the lake back into the dock, you know. And so here he was, like, kind of just sailing. The wind's at his back, and he's jamming, you know. And that's kind of how it is with Solomon. Things seem great. The, 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 The wind's at his back, in a sense. We're seeing the wisdom pour out upon Solomon. We're seeing God's hand upon Solomon. But then we see this terrible statement about him taking all these wives on. And it's like the wind just dies. That sail just rips. And we realize, surely, he's not the one. 
Surely he's not the, the one we're waiting for from Genesis 3.15. He's not the one that's going to deliver us from the curse because he takes on, the text says, 700 wives. He also takes on concubines. And then ultimately they turn his heart from the Lord is, is what the text tells us. And so we, we see this, this, this terrible thing happen, and, and it's like a punch in the gut if you're reading through this narrative and you're waiting for the deliverer from this curse. You're just like disappointed. You're grieving this sin of the Davidic king who's failed to uphold Deuteronomy 17, who's failed to uphold exactly what David had told him. And David had told him that with his own experience of failure. And yet Solomon goes down a similar path. And it doesn't get much better with his son Rehoboam because uh, when the leaders of Israel come to him, the wise men of Israel come to Rehoboam, they say, things were hard under your father. Uh, they would have had building projects. They had a lot going on in Israel. And it's like, things were hard. Let's ease up a little bit. What does he say? Well, my father whipped you with whips. I'll whip you with scorpions. That's right. And what happens under Rehoboam's rule? The kingdom splits. Ten tribes go north. Ten. Ten of the twelve go north with Jeroboam. They set up their own shrine and places of worship because the temple's in Jerusalem. The temple's with Judah and Benjamin, the only two tribes in the south. So surely you have to set up your own temple now so people don't have to go back to those tribes that you just left. And from there, the book of Kings tells us of this continual fail failure. Pretty much there's no faithful kings in the north. And even the Davidic kings we see, again, kind of this spiral downhill. And God sends prophets, calling them back to covenantal faithfulness, calling them back to loving and serving their Lord. And God does this patiently over many years of sending prophets. And as we watch the covenantal curses play out as warning signs, the alarm's going off, these prophets are there telling them things are bad. Things are going to get worse, though, if you continue down this path. They don't listen. And so we continue to see this. There's a couple good kings in the south, but mainly bad. And by the time we get to the end of kings, they're in exile. The worst of the covenantal curses have come upon the people of God, that they would be taken from that land that God promised, that they'd no longer be under the rule of their Davidic king. Surely their names were not great anymore, and now they're in Babylon. They're scattered among the nations when God had given them a land to be a light to the nations. Now they're among the nations. They failed at their high calling. And that's where we're at as Kings ends. So if you will turn with me to 2 Kings, we're all the way to the end of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 25. So again, the covenantal curses have come upon the people. And if you want to read about how bad this was for them, read Lamentations. As Jeremiah laments what has just happened, as he laments this tragic event that has occurred in the exile. So again, they're, they're not in their land as we close out the book of, of 2 Kings. And so we'll start in verse 27 of chapter 25. And in the 37th year of the exile, so again, that word would have been a terrible word for them. Exile taken from the land, reminding us of the garden, getting kicked out of the land. So that year of exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month of the twenty-seventh day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign. 
When you look at books when there's a Davidic king reigning, like in First Kings or Chronicles, it will always talk back, it will reference the years, the year of Hezekiah or the year of a king of Judah, but we're under Babylon time now. We're under Babylon's rule, and so he's pointing back that, no, this is the, the year of a king of Babylon. That's not the way it's supposed to be in Israel. But this is what God does. Graciously, he freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. So he frees him, he frees a Davidic king from prison, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. He gives him a position of honor. And he goes on to say, so Jehoiachin put off his prison garments and every day of his life, every day, so he puts off his prison garments and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as he lived. So we're seeing God's care over the Davidic king. Usually kings would either be humiliated, they'd kind of have a courtyard of, of these kings of conquered nations where they'd humiliate them, or they would just kill their entire line. So there, there could be no more Davidic line, no more kind of, of, of someone who could claim heir to the throne. We kind of see that fear after Saul dies with, with, with the, the tribe of Saul, right? They're, they're afraid that he's going to come and kill them all. But yet, as kings ends, as we see how terrible the exile is, God is pointing them forward. It is God that will preserve that Davidic line. It's God that will act on their behalf. It's God that will do this great act. And let's turn to Revelation. As I promised when we started, we'd, we'd end tonight in Revelation. Go to Revelation 5. So as the Old Testament closes, we kind of get a foretaste of this Davidic kingship, these Davidic promises, but clearly we're left lacking. As the people of God are scattered, we don't see this king on on any visible throne anymore. And so we we really don't see the kingdom of God in in the state that obviously we would want it to be in, of what we would expect. And so as the Old Testament closes, we're still awaiting its reality. And that's why I, I called the Davidic kingship, kind of when we started, like a shadow fulfillment of the kingship to come. It's a shadow of what's to come, of the greatness to come of the true Davidic king who will sit on his throne. And that's what takes us to Revelation 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed and with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John weeps because no one is worthy to do this great thing. But the elders give him comfort. In verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
So what do the elders give John comfort with? The Lion of Judah, the one to come. At this point, he has come, right? But as we've been looking at from the Davidic covenant, that's what we're looking forward to is that one that will come, that one that will conquer. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ, ultimately. Seated on his throne, and that gives John comfort. Because as kings ends, that's exactly what you should be doing is weeping. But then we're reminded that the Davidic king is on his throne. So even as Second Kings is ending, you can weep no more. Because God's doing something great. So much more so for John in Revelation 5. As he's weeping, his, his sorrow can turn to great joy. Because that Davidic king is on his throne. And so one of the greatest applications for the Christian concerning the kingdom of God, concerning God's rule, is that we can stop our worrying. The king is on his throne. Take comfort. Be at peace. No matter what is going on around you, the king is on his throne. And we're not looking at a shadow kingdom anymore. We're looking at the real kingdom. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing more than that these elders can give John comfort with than that. Let's go ahead and close with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ does reign on his throne and he is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And we pray that we would respond to your kingdom with great joy and great rejoicing and that it would cause us peace, comfort, and joy and that we would be at shalom, at rest in our hearts no matter what is going on around us because ultimately you reign. We thank you for your goodness and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. one.